0: This episode of Life Accelerated is brought to you by Equisoft, a leading global provider of end-to-end cloud-based solutions with deep domain expertise in the life insurance industry. To learn more,
1: visit equisoft.com.
0: I'm Anthony O'Donnell, and this is Life Accelerated, a podcast for life insurers striving to achieve digital transformation. We've been fortunate enough to take deeper dives into specific organizations through the lens of their technology leaders in this season of Life Accelerated. And now we want to take a moment to take a look at the industry at large from a wider perspective. We're fortunate to be able to do that with Ellen Carney.
1: We're in an interesting time of change in the whole insurance industry, not just life.
0: Ellen is a principal analyst at Forrester, serving financial services technology decision makers in roles such as CIO and enterprise architect in the insurance, wealth, investment, and asset management industries. In this episode, Ellen shares with us valuable insights from Forrester and their recent data around digital acceleration within the life insurance industry. We also get Ellen's takes on the current technology landscape, including what she thinks is the
1: sexiest technology out there, Anthony, the best way to describe it.
0: Here's the conversation with Ellen. Hi, Ellen. It's great to talk to an old friend and somebody I respect so much. Ellen, we've seen some very encouraging conversations, or we've heard some very encouraging conversations within the Life Accelerated series, and the pandemic seems to have been a factor in accelerating digital transformation in the life insurance industry. How would you say the industry is progressing in that regard? Is life insurance moving away from its reputation as a laggard in a laggard industry when it comes to technology?
1: Oh, absolutely. And what's that truism, Anthony? Nothing like a crisis? Well, that basically was what spurred a lot of changed behavior on the part of consumers. COVID, obviously, we saw record interest in 2020, record new business, double digit sales increases, and sadly, record disbursements to beneficiaries. And all of that put pressure on insurance systems. That pressure is continuing because now we're in a very interesting danger period for the life insurance space. Now it's the Ferrara flu. We have a different attitude towards COVID, we're caring about different things, some of these policies that we wrote back in 2020 are in danger of lapsing and us losing those customers. So this is going to be an absolutely critical way that we're going to be able to use data and analytics to hopefully anticipate and predict who might those lapses might be. And sadly, this is in an industry where we already have the secret shame of the life insurance industry, that we have orphan policies. That's also amplifying this. So technology is going to play a huge role here.
0: And what about the effect of the pandemic on the way insurance companies function and the way technology progressed?
1: work from anywhere. We no longer had swivel chair collaboration or engineering to solve problems, solve technical problems, understand how a new bit of kit actually operated. And so we obviously saw changes in the role of chat, other kinds of capabilities that were gonna help ensure that we could use the new technology investments that we rolled out to accommodate changes in consumer behavior and demand for life insurance in 2020
0: and 2021. Back to the topic specifically of accelerating digital transformation, one of the things I like talking to people about is how they experienced this in their IT shop and whether the fact that work went remote and the fact that there was more pressure to deal with customers on a remote basis, whether that accelerated their digital journey, shall we call it.
1: I wouldn't say it accelerated the digital journey, Anthony. I think it changed some of the things that they prioritized. Certainly some of the things that we're seeing in life insurance technology priorities is, you know, how can we speed up underwriting? Granted, this is functionality that the pyramid doesn't have to show up and draw blood and stuff like that. If you couldn't meet face-to-face, how were you going to be able to do that? And that was being driven by the technology organization, thank you, automated life insurance underwriting applications for many of the reinsurers. So this is certainly one of the ways that IT stepped up to speed up underwriting in a time where we couldn't meet face-to-face. And that was also fueled by capabilities in artificial intelligence, in RPA, also APIs and things like that as well. So, I mean, it was this perfect storm of capabilities, both in terms of technologies that were coming to market, Anthony, but also in terms of use cases that COVID forced for life insurance to invest in
0: what are some of the other technologies that are very important to the life insurance industry now? I'm thinking of things like cloud infrastructure. You've talked a little bit about data, and we'll talk in more detail as we get into some of our topics. But what would you say are the most important types of information technology for the life insurance industry as we go forward five to 10 years?
1: I got to say, Anthony, and you're hearing the same thing in your conversations with clients as well. I mean, who talks about on-prem now? So hands down, the number one inquiry we have from any insurer here, whether it's PNC, Life, Group Involuntary, even brokers, is their cloud strategies. So cloud, first and foremost, how can we move faster, how could we be more agile and take advantage of all the capabilities that come in the latest release and not have to worry about how it's going to map to our data and stuff like that. It's going to happen. So cloud is huge. APIs, I mentioned them before, the glue that integrates systems with our data, but also external data, external solutions that drive better experiences for our customers, for our agents, our advisors, and our brokers. And then finally, something that's taken the place in terms of the sexiest technology out there, Anthony, the best way to describe it, low-code, no-code. So how can we move faster? How can we put the ability to configure in the hands of the business teams, but careful here, governed by the technology organization too. So low-code, no-code. Huge area. But I also would say, Anthony, it's not just in terms of configuration of existing commercial off-the-shelf systems. It's let's use a low-code or a no-code platform to build something that's going to let us test new products, get to market faster. Before we make a decision, do we bring it over to the mothership? So those are some of the use cases that we're also seeing around low-code, no-code.
0: Would you say that the low-code, no-code opportunity also has a future-proofing dimension?
1: Oh, absolutely. And part of the reason for that now too, Anthony, is this came from some research we did back in 2019, is that when we asked insurance application development teams their thoughts on building versus buying, which is now compose versus customized, a level of interest in let's build something ourselves. We can manage it better. It will be less expensive for us than going out and doing a forklift placement of what we have. So obviously what we're seeing is how could low code, no code be used to extend the capabilities of our existing investments, but also give us a competitive advantage with being able to create capabilities that aren't in the marketplace that we can manage less expensively.
0: Well, let's look at some of the major market issues affecting the industry and then talk about how technology might help insurers to respond to them. First of all, how are demographics changing life insurance when it comes to consumer behavior, be that owing to age or cultural differences?
1: Well, a couple of things, Anthony, it's probably not a surprise to you. Who were their big buyers? I mean, obviously we saw big changes. Thank you in MIB data back in 2020 and 2021 in terms of who was buying, but it was obviously your younger customers, first time potential life insurance buyers, or people who are looking to add to the coverage that they already had. So millennials. So how do we create an experience for them that's digital first? And then the other one applying were people 71 and older. So perhaps I didn't have enough coverage. I didn't have any coverage. So those are the two areas that I see. First-time millennial buyers and older population that may be underinsured or uninsured.
0: I would imagine that with regard to millennials, also there's a challenge and an opportunity to reach them when they're younger to find ways of convincing them to buy life insurance because obviously it's grim to say it, but someone can die at any age. But also it's much more economical to start getting life insurance when you're younger.
1: We are absolutely seeing lessons coming to the incumbents from the new insurance startups that are how can we create a better experience for a first-time buyer? As I said before, I think one of the things that we need to pay attention to is those millennials may be breathing a sigh of relief. I didn't develop long COVID or I didn't develop COVID and I'm now moving forward, but we still need to engage with them. We need to engage with them in our systems to make sure that they don't fall off, they don't lapse, and they're continuing to see the value of the relationship that they may have with their life insurers. So there's a bunch of ways, obviously, that we're seeing life insurance firms focus on that.
0: Yeah, and it occurs to me now to think that there's also a great opportunity to close the insurance gap. I mean, life insurance is notorious for failing to reach a significant segment of the population. No doubt automation can help to make it easier to distribute lower value policies.
1: Oh, absolutely. And again, you see even Progressive dipping its toe in the water with their one-year term policy to let people basically try it out on a digital platform. We'd be interesting to see how that plays out, but that was a very interesting move on Progressive's part. So yeah, I agree.
0: Let's explore a little more deeply the effect of longevity on the life insurance industry. If 60 is the new 40, I'm not sure if that's the way they're saying it, if those are the numbers, but let's say that's the number. What does that mean for how life insurance is underwritten and sold?
1: Oh, Anthony, you're so glass is half empty.
0: 100 (laughs) is
1: the new 40. (laughs) That's how you have to think about it.
0: If you say so.
1: (laughs) 100 is the new 40. And of course, that's having huge implications in terms of the kind of products that we're going to be packaging, who's going to be doing the buying. We have a report that's going to be coming out around what changing perceptions of old age are going to mean for the digital experience, for the products that we're going to be developing, but also for basically the surround roles around this. So obviously, a lot of term life policies, they end when you turn 100. Maybe they end when you're 120-something or other. Maybe- we do something really interesting where we do this anticipatory shift of Ellen Carney's life insurance away from the death benefit to the cash accumulation may go into something that's like long-term care or something that might keep me independent in my home longer. So we're going to see products change and that's going to have some really interesting implications on how we underwrite this moving forward. And of course, all the moving pieces technically behind the scenes that are going to enable that to happen. I don't know if you've seen this book from Joseph Coughlin, who runs MIT's Age Lab, but he's basically sized the market for what he calls the longevity economy. In the U.S., it's $8 trillion. Globally, it's $15 trillion. So a big market to
0: pay attention to. A big market and a variety of ways you could attack it. That's exactly
1: right. Sadly, I'm not necessarily sure that this market is going to be something that's going to be served by the existing state of our distribution intermediaries. I think we're going to see something different happening in the future as we think about 10 years out, how we're going to be buying and underwriting life insurance coverage.
0: Now let's talk a little bit about the customer experience. We're seeing that shift away from an emphasis on the policyholder's mortality and toward their well-being and longevity. So what are your views on the shift and the importance of technology and recasting the customer relationship in that way?
1: Well, part of the problem here is the intent of the carriers are really good here. Let's increase and improve your quality of life. Let's not think about life insurance as something that is going to provide a beneficiary to somebody other than you. So let's think about the ways that we could improve the life insurance policyholder experience through wearables or even things like infrared around how we live in the home and just increase the quality of life. So it's a laudable objective that a lot of life insurers have. The problem is for policyholders, you know, there's this interesting thing where, you know, we're talking about it from the future of insurance experiences where, as I had talked about, the policy might morph around Ellen Carney moving death benefits into long-term care coverage. But it also suggests the requirement to make a more intimate experience. Wearables is a great example. We're even now seeing things like soft and embedded chips that would collect this information about us. So that's some of the scary things. At what point do we cross the line in terms of technology that makes people feel uncomfortable about being surveilled? And that's unfortunately part of the problem that we're seeing with some of the wearables is the goal is good, count your steps, watch your eating and your drinking and all all that kind of stuff. And how do I say this? At the end of the day, no one wants to be surveilled.
0: Yeah, but are they willing to trade that for the benefit that they get?
1: Absolutely trade it for a discount in their life insurance coverage. We see that obviously in the trade for your driving data for telematics car insurance. It's no different. So I'm willing to share my data with you to some extent, provided I get something in return and that something in return is typically a discount. But would it be really interesting if a life insurance company did something really, really interesting in terms of what that swap might be? So we talk about digital transformation. I think the kind of fourth wave is going to be this really interesting synthesis of digital and things that we think about as living organic.
0: (laughs) I want us to talk more broadly about how insurers can gain a competitive advantage through better customer experience. And I can't help thinking when you mentioned the wearables that there's the question of having more interaction with the life insurance customer, right? I mean, there's no renewal. The policy exists until the person ceases to. But maybe there are all sorts of services. First of all, you could have more frequent communication, but you could also offer all sorts of services that relate to well-being, that help a person to have a, not just a healthier life, but a more enjoyable life.
1: That's right. Absolutely. And certainly one of the things that we're seeing here is just the overwhelming interest in all things omnichannel. This is certainly one of the ways that we can improve customer experience for our life insurance policyholders. And frankly, we're now seeing that extension before death to the beneficiaries. Hey, let's loop the beneficiaries in as part of this experience with who's going to be looking out for them and their quality of life. So anything from an omnichannel perspective, Anthony, is crazy scorching hot.
0: Yeah, so that makes me wonder about first of all the technological challenges of achieving omni-channel. This is a Herculean integration effort, I would imagine, to get all the data flowing in the right directions. I'm wondering about the importance of process reengineering to achieve customer centricity. We talk about customer centricity, and this is an exciting conversation. But I wonder how far along the industry really is, and whether legacy culture is still standing in the way of digital transformation in the ways that we're describing.
1: Isn't it a wonderful aspirational goal,
0: <laughs> right? Process reengineering. Maybe I'm still being the pessimist here.
1: Well, I mean, what is the classic insurance euphemism about the way we think about process here? We're going to pave the cow path. And that's basically what we've tried to do, is instead of really engineering our poor processes to improve customer experience, improve agent and advisor experience, take out steps in our processes, we put our heads down. And there's also something in that legacy culture. No one really likes to talk about, Anthony, and I'll be kind of curious about your perspective here. There's also this cultural factor in the business of insurance. He who has the most toys wins. If you, as a business leader or a tech leader, have big budgets, have big headcounts, are responsible for lots of revenue coming in, or frankly, lots of cost to the organization, well, you get to pound your chest a little bit. You're kind of a big deal. That in some senses kind of preserve some of this status quo is the fear of losing something here in terms of power and stature. I hate to say it, but it exists. So I think some of this gets manifest in the reluctance to make the right changes in terms of our slow, clunky, batch-oriented processes here that stand in the way of delivering seamless, real-time customer experiences.
0: But the bigger danger is the innovator's dilemma, right? You're talking to people who don't need to be told how to succeed. They've done it. And so it's a very difficult thing to let go of your wisdom. There's a danger of fighting the next war with the last war's tactics.
1: That's exactly right. And the benefits that the insure techs have had, you know this, they started with a clean page. They don't have to go back and fix the past mistakes that drive tech debt. And I think we'll see more attention to this now as we look at this uncertainty in terms of the economy moving forward. But people don't think enough about, you know, if I had to start the business over again, what would I do differently? What would this look like now? And that's really how they should be thinking about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I like to think that it's very important to conserve what is essential to insurance, but that's not necessarily a process issue, right? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, let's shift over to distribution and about insurers' relationship not with customers, but with their distributors. So the question to ask then is, what is the future of the insurance intermediary in a technological age? How much will technology reinforce the insurer-distributor relationship, and how much will direct to consumer grow?
1: Well, we're in kind of an interesting tension between carriers and distributors. I was at an insurer here in New England for the day yesterday, and we had this interesting conversation at lunch. It's like, why wouldn't a young person want to come into the business of insurance? Why wouldn't they want to be an insurance agent? You know, you spend two, three years building your book, and then you can kind of kick back a little bit. And thank you, renewals on the PNC side it just chugs along. And so we were kind of marveling over the fact that for some reason, this very cool business of insurance, taking care of customers, work hard for three years, and then you can enjoy the benefits of your labor. Why that hasn't taken off. And unfortunately, the challenge is, is that we've seen digital and agent as either or when in fact they need to come together. And you're seeing smart agents and advisors doing really cool stuff where they're making the investments themselves in technology to improve the experience for their customers. And of course, what you're seeing from the insurance distributor relationship is how can we take friction out of the distributor's day, share information with them. And again, it's a little bit, I scratch your. Back, you scratch mine. And perhaps you're going to share some information if you're an independent about your book and who those customers are. And maybe that's going to help me as a carrier. So I think we'll see how do we improve the agent advisor broker experience using digital capabilities. And of course, part of the way we're doing this is gluing our mutual systems together with APIs.
0: What are some of the more interesting and possibly overlooked insurance distribution channels? There's been a lot of talk about embedded insurance. What's your take on that opportunity?
1: That's another scorching hot topic, believe me, from an inquiry perspective. Seeing less a little bit on that from the life insurance side in terms of the broader market, Anthony, but that's going to come. Bestow published their API just a couple of weeks ago, so it enabled, frankly, the farm stand down at the end of your street to be able to sell life insurance to become insurance companies in a box you have new distribution channels with embedded insurance. So who knows, this may be something from your mortgage originator. Yes, you're buying a new house. That's certainly one of the trigger events that we see that precipitates the investigation and the purchase of life insurance. I've had a life event. I've gotten married, had a baby, bought a house. So you could see some of those trigger opportunities as an opportunity to embed a life insurance quoting or sale opportunity. The other really interesting area is you all remember from the the 1980s before the internet answered, and the only way we could get discounts on any of our insurance coverage was through a membership organization or an affinity partner program. So we may see a swing back in that pendulum to affinity and industry marketing partnerships moving forward, thinking along the lines of what ADP is doing for their payroll processing customers. Oh, by the way, not only will we process your payroll and do your taxes, but we'll help you manage your human resources. And guess what? We'll sell you insurance as well.
0: Yeah. And it seems that partnerships are going to be very important and there's going to be a lot of competition for who works with whom in order to distribute their life insurance products.
1: Well, and Anthony, there's a risk associated with that, right? There are a couple of companies that we can think of off the top of our heads who do a really good job marketing this, but the insurance industry writ large spends billions of dollars on marketing their brands to consumers. But what happens when you become an ingredient brand? Yeah. Intel Inside. That's brilliant. Or BASF. You know, we don't make the products we use, we make the products you use better. That would be the kind of branding that we see in these embedded models moving forward, where we kind of, unfortunately, disappear into the background and the lead partner on that embedded product, the farm stand down at the end of the street, maybe who the consumer is thinking about that, yeah, that's who I get my insurance from.
0: That's interesting. That's
1: a real risk.
0: Yeah. It's a risk, but one also has to think that if you have a huge life insurance brand, the household names, that that's also a selling point because you want to have a reliable financial service institution behind you, right? Absolutely.
1: But you have to know that that's what the brand is behind the embedded product. That's going to be key.
0: Okay. So let's go back to the big technology issues. First, let's talk about technology spend. What's the technology spending benchmark today for life insurers? And what does it say about their commitment to modernization?
1: Insurance companies are spending about three and a quarter percent of their revenues on anything to do with tech. And it's split 30 percent, change the business tech. So the stuff of innovation. The new cool stuff that we're investing in, in our innovation labs, and hopefully that's getting turned into things that are going to be commercial and scalable for the organization. Sadly, the other 70% is keeping the lights on. And that's going to be in real danger as we look at more precarious economic times. So we obviously need to think about how do we reduce tech debt? How do we shift some of that funding from just keep the lights on to really change the organization innovations that are going to deliver better, different differentiating experiences for our customers and separate us from the competition.
0: I have to say, this gives me a strange feeling of deja vu because I'm pretty sure I heard that same figure in 2005.
1: Yeah, that's fairly consistent. It's unlike anything that we see in the broader financial services market. Just to give you a sense, cap markets, it's about 11% of revenues. They plow back into tech. So unfortunately, we're not probably spending enough here. But the good news is during the pandemic, unlike we saw other industries, insurance companies overall managed to still increase spend.
0: Let's say we're spending the same. I mean, I can remember hearing throughout my career of the figure of three to five percent, five being really on the high side. But maybe there's some opportunity with the advance of technology to do things more cheaply, to do them with less risk, to waste less money. I remember back around the time frame of 2005, we were in a bit of an economic downturn and the mandate was to do more with less. Well, I mean, the whole point of automation is to do more with less.
1: That's kind of our situation, just from the standpoint of, yeah, we want to do more with less, we're going to do automation. Unfortunately, a lot of the automation, at least the first wave of automation, took care of those low-hanging use cases, Anthony, right? So RPA, the really basic stuff, routing emails is an interesting example. You know, let's use RPA to do that rather than humans. So we tackled a lot of the low-hanging fruit from an RPA perspective, then took a breath from an automation perspective and thought about how can we change this very different market that we're working in now that we've tackled the really basic stuff. How do we look at more sophisticated kinds of automation? It's changing the future of work basically in insurance where we work shoulder to shoulder, side by side with a bot that is going to help us process more business and free up the human to do the more human empathetic things that they're better at.
0: I guess we could say the next wave of RPA is what some people call intelligent automation. So that it is automation and it can involve the human part that you mentioned a moment ago, but it also brings in the capacity for routine decision making that can be done on an automated basis.
1: That's exactly right. Yep. And I have to say the fear and certainty of, am I going to lose my job? We're not seeing that. Basically what we're seeing is people moving around into new, more interesting roles, stretch them a little bit from a career perspective, but I've not heard layoffs for things like intelligent automation or even automated underwriting. We've shifted people into new, more high-touch customer roles within the organization.
0: That suggests the question about the great resignation. I was at a conference last week, and there was a discussion about agents fearing a new round of disintermediation, the whole direct-to-consumer discussion, and also increasing automation elsewhere, threatening other jobs. So then that's the question. I guess you've begun to answer it. I thought of this as whether it was a problem or that the greater problem is one of recruiting people to insurance jobs.
1: I think it really is less in insurance, Anthony the great resignation, you know, I think the great resignation might've happened before and it's happening in other industries. I would call it more of the great shift. It's, we're gonna move you into new roles. We're gonna give you more challenges. You're gonna learn new things. And we're in an interesting time of change in the whole insurance industry, not just life. So you'll be pushed, you'll be stretched, you'll be tested in some of these new capabilities. But as we had talked about, the agent isn't just going to be coming in with a briefcase and popping it open on the coffee table or the kitchen table. They have new illustration software. There's e-apps. There's going to be new capabilities for them to interact with an underwriter. So yeah, it's going to completely change their daily work experience.
0: How are life insurers making progress in de-risking technology initiatives through both implementation methodology and the advantages of newer technologies like low-code, no-code?
1: You and I have both been around long enough to know that the insurance industry is an industry of junior high school girls. Bad news gets out fast. Everybody knows when something has gone off the rails, what life insurance carriers are doing is we may be doing a core system replacement, but we're not going to replace everything at one time. So you're seeing more methodical. The other thing that I also see, and you know this isn't always necessarily the greatest news where you had a lot of technology providers see opportunities here where basically the overall opportunity for customization. Paving the cow path or decorating it with some really luck stuff, that's kind gone away from the perspective that I see is let's get the best value out of our partners for our systems, but let's limit the customization to the bare minimum and we'll approach it in different ways. An API, perhaps, instead of customizing something, let's go see in the marketplace what's there to deliver a differentiating value and help us reduce risk associated with modernization projects and obviously reduce the costs associated with it.
0: Well, maybe I can be more the optimist here and ask the question bluntly, is the life insurance industry wasting less money now? Is 3% IT spend from the overall operating budget the new 5%?
1: I think it really is and I think that was brought on by the attention of tech debt paving the cow path that's not working. Let's go back and shift that keep the lights on funding into things that are going to deliver meaningful change for us as a life insurer. The top priority for insurance organizations is how do I build for growth? That's what they need to be thinking about, not how do we fix up what we made some bad decisions about years ago? How do I build for growth moving forward and what's in the marketplace that's going going to help me a preserve that investment that maybe I wasn't really smart about or smart enough about because I was hasty. I didn't do a good enough job on my requirements definition and business is in a big hurry. You got to get them to slow down and think about what they really, really want. And so that's certainly one of the ways that we're seeing is real deliberate strategic thinking about what the objective is that they want, how they're going to get there, and then making the technology investment plans after they figure all of that stuff out.
0: Well, and with a more iterative process like Agile, it's an easier task or a more stable task to maintain alignment between business and IT.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the days of seven-year core system replacement projects is over. If you're not delivering value in two weeks or eight weeks where that's appreciable and measurable, well, it doesn't make sense to make the investment.
0: Well, that seven-year figure just ran a a chill up my spine. (laughs)
1: But you remember those days, right? <laughs> oh, yes, I
0: certainly do. One of my favorite topics these days is that while the tech movement has been significantly focused on the front end, data innovation is poised to make a more essential impact on this data-driven industry. I mean, we've talked quite a bit about product innovation. So how do you see the importance of data to life insurance innovation?
1: Well, it's going to be critically important just from the standpoint it is going to be really the differentiator for insurance organizations and not just the experience, but what data are we capturing? What are we going to be able to do with these capabilities from a personalization standpoint? How we can use data to create more personalization opportunities and frankly, in some senses as long as it's not creepy, provide better advice and counsel to our life insurance policyholders. It's non-insurance services. You can absolutely imagine the life insurance marketplace getting into the caregiving business. We've certainly seen that with financial planners targeting home pack-up services for empty nesters. So we're moving into crazy cool services that complement the insurance relationship but are not necessarily strictly insurance. Data and analytics are going to identify when a big event could be happening.
0: I've had the pleasure of knowing Ellen for many years, which made this episode of Life Accelerated so much fun. One of the reasons we've been friends for so long is that I find her insights valuable and always very well expressed. I encourage you to ponder her insights as they are likely to shed some light on your current initiatives which could help you to ensure that you place proper emphasis in your planning on things such as the customer experience and improving the agility of your systems and processes. Thank you for joining us for the Life Accelerated podcast. For more relevant content to help you achieve digital transformation, visit equisoft.com/lifeaccelerated.